Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics, which are going to educate and empower others. And give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Welcome back. are going to finish the month, but not our eligibility series because we only did the intro. Yeah. Well, we've gotten a lot of great feedback, which is great. And so, you know, today, obviously, and then through March, and probably, I mean, there's eligibility categories, everybody. We yeah. don't write on this one, but we wanted to do a deeper dive into one of the most misunderstood, I would say, eligibility categories. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, and what we'll go through today is the big difference between federal and state law. Um, We've talked about this in the past, but as you all know, the federal law, the IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, trumps state laws. But state laws can go further. They can't limit from what the federal law says, but they can go further. They can allow more, they can describe more. So in California, under our California Education Code, most eligibility categories are fairly similar to what the IDEA says, but this is one example where it's a good idea to look at your state education code because as you'll see today, (laughs) California, very different, but much more explanation in the Cal Ed Code than there is in the IDEA. Yes, yeah, so we'll get right into it. Specific learning disabilities. So we'll go over the federal, which is yeah. like So under the IDEA, specific learning disability means a disorder in one of the more basic psychological processes involved in understanding or in using language spoken or written that may manifest itself in imperfect ability to listen, think, speak, read, write, spell, or do mathematical calculations, including conditions such as perceptual disabilities, brain injury, minimal brain dysfunction, dyslexia, and developmental aphasia. Disorder is not included, so it goes further. It says specific learning disability doesn't include learning problems that are primarily a result of visual, hearing, or motor disabilities, of intellectual disability, or emotional disturbance, or of environmental, cultural, and economic disadvantage. And as we go through the series, you'll see that a lot of those are covered in other categories. So it's not to say that those people, students with those disabilities aren't covered. It's just they're not covered under this. This is really looking at the processing. So all the, not limited to, but such as um, those disorders that we include. But as you see here, it is somewhat vague. You know, obviously we have the two-pronged test under the IDEA that it has to adversely affect their education as well. So having a diagnosis, let's say, of dyslexia doesn't automatically give you eligibility, which I'm sure lots of our listeners have experienced. It has to adversely affect the student's educational progress. Right. And what's interesting is it's not just for specific learning disability. We have plenty of clients that have said, well, they clearly have autism, but they're not qualifying. And then we'll do the evaluations and the child will qualify under speech and language impairment. But the parents like, but we have autism, right? And so what specific learning is, it's just that, right? It's very specific to the type of 
area or processing, right? And so a lot of times when we look at what dyslexia is, <clears throat> if we try to like parcel it out, it's like a processing deficit in reading, right? And so that there's like something, there's a way in which the brain, yeah, very specific, right? So, and you might have this specific learning disability in multiple areas. So we sometimes yeah. see kids where it's it's identified specific learning disability in reading or writing or math. But there are mm-hmm. many students where they might have it in multiple areas. They might have it in written expression and communication. They might have it in reading and writing. Sometimes you have it in, in several, but we have to look at each of these academic areas as possible specific learning disability. So if they're like, well, they read just fine on grade level, you're not at a specific learning disability, but like you might be for math. So don't let a district say that, oh, well, if one area of academics is fine, they don't have a specific learning disability. It doesn't need to be across the board. Right, exactly. And it's interesting, right, in that the federal law kind of spells out, it's like imperfect ability to listen, Mm -hmm. speak, read, write, spell, or do mathematical calculations. And then they give you some examples. And so we see dyslexia there, right? California adds the basic psychological processes include attention, visual processing, auditory processing, sensory motor skills, cognitive abilities, including association, conceptualization, and expression. So this is a perfect example of California providing more examples of what a basic psychological process could include. Right. And now I, I want to make clear that if you are not in California and you're thinking, well, does, could this still apply? Yes, this, this absolutely still could apply to your child. The IDEA is vague and each of your states are going to have their own education code that delineates and could expand just like California does. But remember too, that the IDEA sets out that all of this eligibility determinations, it's an individualized basis. Mm-hmm. So It doesn't mean that just because the IDEA doesn't spell out, say, visual processing, auditory processing, doesn't mean that it can't still apply. It is the interpretation, the analysis that should occur by your IEP team. And where we see the most of the failures occur is in this analysis piece, is that either the school district will take the very broad language, like we read, and say, well, there's not an overwhelming, significant discrepancy, you know, we're not going to find your child eligible. But, you know, when we dive deeper into the language of California, if you're not in a state that goes broader, doesn't mean you can't use these portions, these definitions, because really what California has done has used some case law interpretation of like what's happened over the years to determine like, we need to clarify a few things. So it's not like it's saying that this is different than the federal law. It is really just clarifying some of these things. Um, Back in the day, we used to have school districts use what they would call the discrepancy model as a way of saying, if your child, and this used to be the standard in many cases, if your student falls two standard deviations below grade level, then that's when they qualify under the discrepancy model, as in there's a discrepancy between their ability and their achievement levels. But as you'll see, it's not as simple as that. And we see some school districts still falling into that. Well, there's not two standard deviations. There's not two grade levels below. And so therefore my child doesn't qualify. So it's important to note that, you know, we're going to dive deeper. It's really looking into that individualization and 
how should these school districts be analyzing? And I think you had an example of an assessment of looking at what is a school supposed to do or what are they doing in their analysis? Right. So they just very quickly in the notes indicated that at this time, the child does not have a processing deficit, not a discrepancy between her cognitive and academic abilities, and therefore does not meet criteria for special education. Like just they laid it out very vaguely. Obviously, they reviewed this was an IEP. Our office did not attend. This was way before our office got involved. But really just kind of just did a really quick analysis. And even in the actual evaluation report where there were clear areas in reading and writing that the child fell below, they just kind of clumped everything together and said, well, she's doing well. You know, she's in second grade, for instance, and she's at first grade reading level, but we have plenty of kids that are at first grade reading level in second grade. Like, really blatantly just trying to misinterpret the data, the, the information that was like in front to say, yeah. she's hanging in there. So that's great. Right. We also had an instance and, you know, by the time the case got to us, you know, we have a persistent pattern of non-special education interventions not working. If this is a child of above average or average cognitive abilities, and they are making their way along, that's very different than the child that should be able to be, like nothing is stopping them aside from a processing deficit, which here is is what we see with this particular child. So it's really interesting the analysis that we had to do in order to say, look, because they were trying to downplay the discrepancy. There is no discrepancy. She's doing fine. And it was like, it's an inconsistent pattern of ones and twos, maybe she'll get some threes, but that's going to turn into burnout by the time that she's in high school. That's going to turn into dyslexia is not going to cure itself. It's not like, you know, it's not horribly before they're like, okay, well, we'll give her some. Well, and the other problem there is the language that you just read from the report. There was no analysis there. There was no discussion of what does that discrepancy mean? What does it look like? Or if there's no discrepancy, like there was no explanation. And I got into a big argument back and forth with an IEP team recently on this because the team member said, you know, we don't believe the child qualifies because there's no significant discrepancy. And I said, what definition of significant discrepancy are you using? Can you please analyze what you believe that means? Mm -hmm. And their attorney shut them down. They wouldn't let them speak. There was no further discussion. And in the report, there was no discussion. It was simply one sentence. And so this is where if you're getting into a challenge with the school district, they're saying your child is not eligible and you're trying to figure out, well, you know, because I've had families that have said, well, maybe my child's just not eligible. And like, am I wrong in thinking they are? And, you know, so if you're really trying to figure out in some cases they we have outside assessors who can do an, the, a proper analysis. But if you you can't afford an assessor or you you don't have the means to getting that, one thing you can look at is looking at more details. And so we'll go into the clarifications that California does. And I will tell you, if you're not in California, I don't want you to be too jealous that I have all this clarification, because I can tell you that nine times out of 10, the school district does not use this language and does not use this analysis. (laughs) So we have it. And that's why we are able to file cases because they don't follow the law. But 
bear with me because there is quite a bit of information in here. Vicky will stop me now and then and we'll kind of touch base, but I want to make sure you guys get all of these. It's some good information. So the California Education Code splits this into essentially three sections of determining an A, B, and C, kind of of these clarifications. So the first is partially what the um, IDEA says of like what a specific learning disability is not. So it's not learning problems that are a result of visual, hearing, motor, intellectual disability, emotional disturbance, environmental, cultural, advanced. But the second part it's really going into how do we know if there is a learning disability? So it says in determining whether a pupil has a specific learning disability, the public agency may consider whether a pupil has a severe discrepancy between intellectual ability and achievement in oral expression, listening comprehension, written expression, basic reading skill, reading comprehension, mathematical calculation, or mathematical reasoning. The decision as to whether or not a severe discrepancy exists shall take into account all relevant material which is available on the pupil. No single score or product of scores, tests, or procedures shall be used as the sole criterion for the decisions of the IEP team as the, to the pupil's eligibility for special education. So I'm going to stop there. couple of things. One, remember it said may consider, meaning mm-hmm. that this is not the only way to determine if there's a specific learning disability. This is one way. Mm-hmm. But the second piece is, the sole product or score cannot be used. So where we see this in being interpreted is the cognitive assessment, the academic assessment will do one test mm-hmm. and one test only. We might have the Woodcock-Johnson and they're saying they're falling in the average range. So therefore no significant discrepancy exists. And in fact, in the case I was just mentioning, that was what happened. They didn't say it. They refused to say it because they know that that's not what the law says, but they were using these standardized testing, only one measure to say, because what was happening in the classroom, very, very different. And it contradicted those standardized test scores. And just to give a little bit of context, when we're looking at specific learning disability, 39 states actually let their local educational agencies continue to utilize that as an option of identification, right? And then of those 39 that use the severe discrepancy model, 29 of them allow them to use the severe discrepancy and then something else. And then 10 of those gives them like another option. When we're looking at 11 of the states that just completely prohibit the discrepancy model, which should tell you a lot, right? Like obviously we're in the United States, We love to have each state be its own little laboratory. So we have some states' rights, right? But like a good amount are saying, no, we we shouldn't even use this at all. And the alternative, which California uses as well, is the where you assess the patterns of strengths and weaknesses between cognitive abilities and achievement. So while the discrepancy model is just straight, like here's their cognitive ability, here's their achievement, where's the discrepancy, when we are looking at the patterns and the independent evaluation that we had had in this case, the evaluator was wonderful in trying to explain the difference and why in 2004, when the IDEA came out and basically it said like, look, this could be an option. It's not the only way. That was really a game changer. But I know these people are still living in 20, 
2003, I guess, before <laughs> before this they was. But anyway, well, she, they tried to shut her down when she was trying to explain it. It was very rude. They don't want to hear it because they don't want to hear that what they've been doing for years is wrong. And unfortunately, they have attorneys that have seminars for school districts that spew the same BS all the time. But anyway, so California goes further to say, in determining the existence of a severe discrepancy, the IEP team shall use the following procedures. So before we had may consider this model. Now we're saying if you use this model, you shall use these procedures. Meaning if a school district says we're going to use the discrepancy model, then they have to follow these procedures. So they outline three different ways that you can look at this analysis. The first is if you consider standardized tests that were done for the student to be valid, then there's one way to look at it. But if the standardized tests are not considered to be valid, then you have to go a different route. It's kind of almost like a choose your own adventure going on here. But so if standardized tests are considered to be valid for this particular student, a severe discrepancy is demonstrated by first converting into common standard scores using a mean of 100 and a standard deviations of 15, the achievement test score and the intellectual ability test score to be compared, computing the difference between these common standard scores and third, comparing the computed difference Standard criterion, which is the product of 1.5 multiplied. I'm not going to bore you with the rest of this, but essentially this is kind of that, what we mentioned before, that two standard deviations below. It's essentially that. We are strictly comparing scores and we are looking at if there's this severe discrepancy. But as I mentioned, a lot of times kids could be suffering and struggling in class but standardized scores, it's looking on the average. So just because those standardized scores may be considered valid, right, doesn't mean that them not having a severe discrepancy means there's no specific learning disability because there's a third option. So obviously, if the standardized tests are not considered valid, then you cannot use them as a determining factor of if there's a severe discrepancy. So what do you do if the standardized scores are valid and there's no discrepancy there. Are we done? Most school districts would say, we're done. There's no eligibility. But California is very specific. says, no, there's a third option. If the standardized tests do not reveal a severe discrepancy as defined by one and two, the IEP team may find that a discrepancy still does exist, provided that the team documents in a written report the severe discrepancy between ability and achievement exists as a result of a disorder in one of the more basic psychological processes. The report should include a statement of the area, degree, and basic method used in determining discrepancy. So it's talking about it needs to include um, data obtained from standardized assessment instruments. So observational assessments, information provided by the parent. And notice information. Too. I think that's important because yes. a lot of times, especially in the case that I was at my forefront, like they basically just, they were Parents have gone, you know, have to sit and do homework for four hours a day and she's getting what's and they were just like, well, the teacher says she's doing fine. And it's yeah. like, well, that's one aspect. Right. Right. Should, yep. right. Information by the parent is specifically listed in here. Information by the pupil's present teacher, mm-hmm. evidence of the pupil's performance in regular and or special education classroom obtained from observations, work samples, and group test scores. And then a consideration of the pupil's age particularly for young children, and any other relevant information. Mm -hmm. So what is this saying? It's saying 
that if you've had the test scores that the standard cognitive assessment, the Woodcock-Johnson says, average cognitive ability, academic scores, doesn't mean we're done. We need to look at everything else. And this is probably where we get the biggest pushback and the biggest fight, where the student, and in many cases, I see a teacher saying, the child is struggling. They're not, they're getting, and the report card might say, Yep. or D's or maybe in the younger grades the report cards are still saying twos and threes because they're basically getting credit for participation but when you actually look at the scores they're not getting answers correctly that's all information so there's not one way to do this there's not one clear method it's not like a mathematical equation here there needs to be analysis and as you saw in what we read there's so much to that so if a team is just saying there's no severe discrepancy and there's nothing further that analysis is not correct. It, it violates the IDEA. It is not an appropriate assessment. So I want to go into this kind of third section under the Cal Ed Code that talks about when a, kind of another way, right? So we have the standard model of using the test scores and we have this way of looking at the severe discrepancy based on all these other factors. But then this is the third area where you've heard us talk about Andrew F and how the Supreme Court decision in Andrew F really brought to light a lot of these circumstances of a child. This kind of dives into it as well. So it says whether or not a pupil exhibits a severe discrepancy, a pupil may be determined to have the specific learning disability if, and it goes into a couple other scenarios. So one of it is the pupil does not achieve adequately for the pupil's age or to meet state-approved grade-level standards in one or more of the following areas when provided with learning experiences and instruction appropriate to their age. So oral expression, listening comprehension, written expression, basic reading skills, reading fluency skills, reading comprehension, mathematic calculations, and problem solving. And if the pupil doesn't make significant progress, sufficient progress to meet those state-approved grade-level standards, and... So when we're looking at that, the first thing that should come to your mind is in California, we have states testing. In many states, you do. It used to be called star testing. Now it's the smarter balance testing. So what happens I've seen in many cases is the student is doing like okay in the classroom, right? They're getting like twos and ones every once in a while, but they're really bright kids. The standardized tests are showing average score, but we get these smarter balance tests where they're below standards in all areas. And they've been below standards for three years. And the parent goes, what about these? And the school district says, well, those are just state standards. Like that doesn't affect their grade. Like that's not a measure. Well, what this area of the Cal Ed Code is doing is talking about, it's not enough that one year you have to have kind of like Wiki mentioned before, but the pattern, that pattern of not achieving. So if you're not seeing any progress on those state standards, that's a way that we can be looking at a significant discrepancy as well, because we're it, it's saying to ensure that underachieving pupils suspected of having a learning disability is not due. We're looking at making sure there's appropriate data. And again, it goes into details about how you have to look at all of the factors. It can't just be like one. And again, looking at all these areas of academics, not just reading, writing, and arithmetic, but the listening comprehension, the written expression, problem solving, all of that. So it's really clear in here that school districts should be doing a lot more when they analyze these eligibility categories. And 
we do see, unfortunately, pushback in those areas, of course. But this is how, like, when we get a case, as we've described, this is how we are putting forward a complaint, right? We are really clearly going into these details to say, your analysis school district was wrong when you said this child was not eligible, and here's why. Just simply asking questions, right? Like, so the number, the last kind of couple of words in what you had just read is, you know, are they making progress based on their response to scientific research-based intervention. Okay, what is that? What are you guys using? We often see the iReadies, right, that they're trying to show. And, you know, I think when you get to a child that has dyslexia, for instance, and is doing okay, again, they probably should be getting twos and threes, if not all threes, but they're just getting, you know, those ones and twos and threes. It's like all over the place. I just find it hard to believe that the schools and maybe the school psychologists are not getting the right information from above, but why are you trying to prevent this child from getting appropriate reading intervention and services? That's what it feels like. Anytime I ask my clients, does it feel like they're, you know, or they ask me like, why are they saying no to this? Like my child has dyslexia. This isn't going to go away. It's just going to get worse. And the best way that I can, and it's not even the right way to console them. But, you know, I had a judge once tell me, you know, the district is trying to put out a lot of fires. And if we're on a block, and this house in front of them is on fire, and you know, your client's house is just a few houses down is on fire, they're going to attend to this one before they attend there. And it's just like, basically, you're telling me that they're just going to kick this can down the road. Like, why wouldn't, how important is early intervention? So important, especially with reading and writing. We've had Kathy Johnson on, we've had our dyslexia experts say, if we can get the early intervention in reading, like legit reading, research-based, evidence-based programming, Orton-Gillingham, Linda Mubel, like we get those interventions before the child gets into third grade, we are able to help them succeed in the long run and overcome or, or not even overcome, but like be that reader that, you know, is a lot harder when you're in the fifth, sixth, seventh grade. And if you're only getting 30 minutes a day of the reading intervention, you know, I think it's hard. It's hard for parents, but we have it here. We have the protections in California and, you know, look up your state. Obviously there's 11 other states that strictly forbid the use of the discrepancy model. And there's a couple more parts. This one's going to be a little lengthy. We're going to try to just get really quickly. And then if you guys have questions, maybe we could do a part two down the line, but we really want to try to keep this information. Again, we are attorneys. We're not your attorneys. We are reading the law verbatim from the California ed code, but the analysis that Amanda and I are talking about is pulled from our 10 plus years of experience in this area of the law. So well, we're trying to give you the tools to understand and be curious and just be aware of what the law actually says, you can go to your district and ask them and really be genuine in your curiosity of like, well, how do you do this? Like, because I know it seems like Amanda's saying like, you know, question and how do they, how are you doing this? And you don't have to have a law degree. You really just have to come from a genuine place of curiosity to say, I'm not understanding. I feel like there's a disconnect. What do you mean by the words that you're saying? You have a right to ask for these because unfortunately this, well, the school, I think a lot of times thinks, well, we're the expert. 
So if we're saying this, then we have a reason why we're saying this. But you as a parent have a right to be informed. You have a, as a parent have a right to have all the information. So if a school district is doing an analysis off paper and they're just giving you the conclusion, right? Because the, the statement that Vicky read earlier, that's not an analysis, that's a conclusion. If you're getting a conclusion without proper analysis, and as you've heard us do all day today, all of what we've been doing has been the analysis part. If you don't get that part, they're not doing their job in informing you. They don't get to withhold that information. They don't get to say, well, that's just our understanding. And so that's how it is. Like, that's not how the law works. You know, so in asking questions and saying, I don't understand what you mean by severe discrepancy. Can you explain? You have a right to do that. And they should be explaining even without you asking that question. Or why are you not using the patterns of strength and weaknesses in performance, right? I thought that that, and that's that's number two under what Amanda had, had just read, right? And that is, you know, being able to kind of use a lot of the information, like kind of using all of it, right? Which we would hope that just in any analysis of eligibility, you'd be kind of looking at a pattern of strengths and weaknesses, but it really outlines it out in the Cal Ed Code. And then again, in three under that, it's kind of saying, look, you know, when we're doing this analysis, we cannot have as a primary result, you know, any findings where there's a visual hearing or a motor disability an intellectual disability, like those have their own place, right? And then when we get to four, it's very interesting because I had this analysis in a different case and I was like, what is going on? So basically, we want to be sure that the child that is underachieving has not been getting these low scores in reading and writing, for instance, because of a lack of appropriate instruction in reading or math. And it says the group making the decision must consider. So I had that analysis because we had a kiddo that was in the foster care system. And basically, all the numbers were there. Everything was saying, hey, yeah, this kid, they actually use the discrepancy model. And remember, we're in the realm of, hey, you don't have to use that. You can use this. But they pulled this and said, well, this kid basically is low because he hasn't had, he hasn't been in school long enough to get the appropriate reading instruction, which I think was the way that they just like pulled that out. It's like, why are you guys using anything to try to keep this kid from getting the- right. But what's interesting is in that scenario, it might be the exception for SLD, specific learning disability, but I would argue either there's probably something there with either communication or other health impairment or even, you know, mental health, emotional disturbance. So like in that scenario, just because we're saying they may be an exception to this, where they may not fall under SLD, they may still qualify for an IEP. Yeah, you know, I, I think that they were just trying to use it to use it. And it was just completely ridiculous that they yeah. would even just try to pull that. But that's why you want to be sure, hey, what are you guys telling me? Is this the only way that we can do it? You know, tell me more about like other ways that we can find the child, you know, qualify, right? And then under that, obviously, we're looking like the group must consider if it's going to be that underachievement because of the lack of instruction, like where's the data, right? That demonstrate that prior to or part of the referral process, people was provided appropriate instruction in regular education settings delivered by qualified personnel and the data-based documentation of repeated assessments of achievement at reasonable intervals reflecting formal assessment of student progress during instruction, which was provided to the people's parents. When they are just picking and choosing different things and there's no data whatsoever, that's what really grinds our gears. 
we just find that a lot of conclusions are made and there's not the data to support it. And so that's why we're always talking to you guys about data being very important and why you want to be able to see that data. And you have a right to request that data. So if they're making a conclusion and there's no analysis and maybe in the IEP meeting, they're saying, you know, they're not, they're giving you the runaround. They're not really giving you an, a true analysis, then say, okay, I'd like to see the data and the documentation behind your conclusion. And if they can't produce data, that means it doesn't exist. And so I'm not sure what they're pulling from. I mean, I've gotten before teams that say the, well, yeah, the child is getting twos and sometimes ones and threes, but their teacher's not concerned because there's other students in the class that are getting those same grades. And it's like, well, whoa, first of all, that doesn't matter. doesn't matter that other students, because maybe that student also needs an IEP. Unfortunately, they don't, you know, they need to be told too, but, but that's besides the point, like having, and we were seeing that a lot post COVID, right? Because a lot of kids are behind because of COVID. And so we're seeing some schools that are saying that exact phrase. Uh, Well, a lot of kids, because they missed a lot during COVID. So that's not a reason. But I think there's been a lot of cases out there and there's been a lot of um, guidance from the Department of Education that has said that like schools, you can't use COVID as an excuse for why these kids, because it's kind of like when we look at, it doesn't matter the reason behind it, right? It doesn't matter if the specific learning disability came from, you know, something that happened. Like, of course, if it's just relating to, like Vicki said, the foster youth, that's one thing. But, you know, if it was because of COVID, most likely COVID didn't cause a specific learning disability. It just probably brought it out to the forefront sooner than it would have. Because maybe that kid is of average cognitive abilities and maybe they wouldn't have started to struggle until fifth grade, but now they're struggling in third grade because they missed a lot of instruction. So that can't be the only factor, just like any, everything else we've talked about. There can't just be one factor that you're saying they're not eligible because of this or because of that. We have to be looking at the whole picture, all of their circumstances to determine if that child is eligible. Absolutely. And so then just to circle out the Cal Ed Code, the five just indicates, you know, hey, we need to have observation of the child in the learning environment. And if they're, you know, out of school age or out of school, you know, qualified professional should observe and makes references to other areas of the code. So That one was jam-packed. I know (laughs) there's so much more that we could talk about, but send us your questions, direct message us, and then maybe we can do a mini kind of secondary episode to this, but we will continue on with this eligibility series. We got a couple great guests that are gonna kind of weigh in. So we're really excited about that. And uh, yeah, we hope you guys enjoyed and we will talk to you later. Bye. Bye.